Welcome to Fight Back Radio, the Marxist voice of labor and youth in Canada, and the best source for revolutionary analysis of current events, perspectives, and theory. You're listening to Fight Back from the Archives, an occasional series of classic leadoffs given by some of the leading comrades of Fight Back. In this leadoff from 2013, Fight Back editor Alex Grant discusses what is centrism and what is the approach that Marxists should take towards the mass organizations of the working class. A lead-off on what is centrism. And it's a very important question. It's connected with, intricately connected, with work in the mass organizations. Uh, just in case anybody was uh, under a misconception, it is not centrism is not middle of the road liberalism. Uh, that is not the Marxist conception of centrism, uh, and in fact, uh, there is no center of politics. Before anybody starts using that terminology, but the, uh, the the term centrism actually originates, as far as I can tell, I. Uh, Someone may prove me wrong on this, but as far as I can tell, it actually originates from Kautsky's faction in the Second International. That uh, Kautsky was one of the leading theoreticians of the Second International. And actually for a long period, Lenin considered himself an orthodox Kautskyist. And one of Kautsky's early writings are excellent. Uh, the Origins of Christianity... Uh, some other writings are, are, are very good. But he, uh, as the movement developed, and you know, we've discussed this before, that the Second International had the, was a mass international based upon Marxist ideas, but it had the misfortune of growing up on a, in a period of prolonged capitalist growth, which led to a, a reformist and bureaucratic degeneration of its leadership. And Kautsky represents the centre between the lefts around sort of Rosa Luxemburg, Karl Liebknecht, Lenin, Trotsky, and the the out and out sort of reformist revisionists, Bernstein and, and the actual leaders of the international, so the, the mass leaders, the worker, workers' leaders on the right. That uh, and it represents a vacillating tendency. Actually, I might add that for a whole period, almost up until sort of 1910-1912, Lenin considered himself a supporter of Kautsky. But uh, actually, it was Rosa Luxemburg that could see through his inconsistencies. And because as part of the German party, she was facing it every day, uh, Reform or Revolution, fantastic work, was written in 1900, recognizing the reformist bureaucratic weaknesses uh, within the Second International. Uh, and Kautsky as, if you like, an enabler of these processes. Uh, Kautsky polemicized against uh, Bernstein's revisionism, but he... Uh, Polaricized against it in a way that was, well, it's just a little bit impolite to say these things in public. And in fact, that's what the leaders of the Second International said to uh, uh, Bernstein, is that, look, look, you don't say these things, you just do them. Uh, so that, that's sort of the, where the, the term centrism, the center, comes from, as far as I can tell uh, by my limited research. Um, but to give the Marxist definition of centrism, actually, it's, it's, uh, this is a very difficult lead-off to prepare, to be honest, because there isn't one centrism. There are many centrisms. Every centrism is unique. It's like trying to define anarchism. There's many anarchisms as there are anarchists. So, okay, centrism isn't quite that bad. But you have to look at each centrism in its historical context. And, but a broad definition is centrism is a vacillating tendency between left reformism and fully worked out 
revolutionary Marxism. Now, in certain individuals or small groups can be organically centrist, but that is not so much our concern. The main thing that's interesting from a point of view of Marxist theory is mass centrism. Mass centrism comes about in certain periods from within the mass organizations. And, and it is symptomatic of a crisis, a fundamental crisis in society. And, and this is strongly connected with our analysis of the mass organizations and the perspective of entry of work in the mass organizations that Trotsky uh, developed. I'd also, also uh, like to make a general appeal that centrism, or any other term of Marxist terminology, is not, cannot, must not, be used as a term of abuse. Like sometimes Marxism is abused by using Marxism as a term of abuse. If you want to abuse something, you should say something about their parentage, or uh, relate them to the, you know, the sexual organs of various animals. That is the, that is the convention on how to abuse someone. <laughs> Marxist terminology exists for a purpose, and abuse is not that purpose. So, um, the key symptom of centrism is an organic failure to draw the necessary conclusions for the epoch. And, but this can be, but because it's reflective of a mass, of the mass movement of the workers, when the workers come, come into the scene of history in their mass, it can actually be very seductive to the workers. We actually explain this in our perspectives document, that there are the out-and-out betrayers who, after a period, the workers can see through quite clearly those who have a deliberate intention to betray the movement. And then there are those who honestly want the movement to succeed, but through their policy, through their indecisiveness, through their inaction, end up effectively betraying the movement, even though they want it to succeed. And, and this is why uh, centrism can actually be incredibly seductive and dangerous to the working class in periods of revolution. And, and it's also vitally important that Marxists take the correct policy towards centrism, centrist, mass centrist tendencies when they arise. That you cannot just reject them out of hand because they re represent something more than themselves. You must actively engage the mass of the workers involved in these movements. So, you can't be ultra-left and reject them, but neither can you be opportunist and succumb to the centrist platitudes and, uh, and an ability to come to the necessary conclusions. That you must, the, the, the fully worked out Marxist tendency must have an implacable critique of the platitudes of the centrist leadership. Otherwise, you just fall into the swamp. You fall into the swamp, and you're no different. And, and, that, and, this is, and, and then you will never reach the workers. The correct ideas will never reach the workers. So the first task is to educate the cadres of the movement on the necessary approach to centrism. Because it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a big opportunity, but it's also a big danger. A, a tendency that is not well theoretically grounded, a, a mass centrist current, you could end up losing half, half of your activists to that. Because why be part of a small group with unclear ideas when you could be part of a big group with unclear ideas? <laughs> so, not that we wish to be a small group, but we are, we are aware of our strengths and limitations. But our strength is the clarity of ideas.
So I'll, give, I'll try and give a, a sort of historical overview of, of centrist currents. Now, the early Comintern, Communist International, the, uh, the Russian Revolution initiated a wave of revolutionary sentiment throughout uh, mostly Europe and North America, uh, and with a, a wave of uh, uh, sympathy towards the first workers' state. And, and this initiated mass splits inside the existing workers' organizations, the socialist parties, the labor parties, uh, that the, uh, the German social democracy split, in fact, it split in three, between the sort of reformist wing, the uh, communist wing, became the basis of the Communist Party of Germany, and also the uh, a centrist wing around Kautsky, the independence splits off. And unfortunately, the leaders of the German communists at the time, unfortunately, uh, Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht have been murdered. Centrist sort of faction splits away, and the leaders of the German, the young German Communist Party were too ultra-left. They didn't recognize the need to actively engage the ranks of this uh, centrist organization, the independents, and, and, they, and they lost a significant opportunity there. But, uh, and actually it went off to uh, form what uh, became colloquially known as the uh, two and a half international. Not the second international, not the third international. Somewhere in between of sort of vacillating elements that you know rejected reformism but couldn't come to the full conclusions of Soviet Soviet power. But uh, the new affiliates to the, the Communist International, when it was founded in 1919, well, actually, in many ways, uh, they were quite confused themselves. They weren't. They didn't fully understand the uh, how the Bolsheviks had come to power. You know, they it, they hadn't seen the full story. You know, the full story was written in Russian, and you know they'd only heard <coughs> the last chapter through the lens of the bourgeois media. That uh, uh, in in the English language, there was only one book. Uh, Trotsky's uh, Bolsheviki and World Peace, and then about was it five six years later, John Reed's uh, Ten Days That Shook the World came out. Uh, but there was sort of very little stuff in, in, in the English language. I assume it's similar in other languages. Um, so the the new affiliates of the, the the Third International were quite confused, and uh, and many of them. You could say worse centrists or ultra lefts, and actually the division between centrism and ultra leftism. Uh, the centrist could be ultra left to one question and opportunist or another. Uh, it's not a sort of you know, homogenous ideology by any any account. But uh, the difference was you had the incredible authority of the Bolsheviks of the old uh, yeah. The only party to successfully overthrow capitalism, leading the working class to victory, and with that authority, moral authority, to be clear, it's not a bureaucratic authority, they were able to patiently explain. And in the so Lenin wrote left wing communism, uh, an infantile disorder, in order to educate the ranks of the, uh, the communist international. And you know, that third congress was characterized as the, in 1921, was the, uh, the, the school of revolutionary tactics. And uh, Lenin Trotsky stood up and said uh, that uh, uh, we proudly call ourselves the right wing. And at the beginning of that congress, they were probably in a minority. But through patient explanation, they were able to win the comrades over through the authority of the moral authority and the experience to educate the rest of uh, the international. Well, unfortunately, that international degenerated for reasons I do not have time to go into, whilst the comrades understand. And this
this is another aspect of centrism. With the degeneration of the Communist International, Trotsky actually his, was very tentative and dialectical in his terminology used to define the process of the degeneration of the Soviet Union and of, and of the, uh, the Communist Party. That, and the first definition that Trotsky advanced, he defined Stalinism as bureaucratic centrism. Which is uh, a very interesting, if, if you look at the evolution, that it's, this is a political definition. Right? It doesn't talk about the, uh, the economy of the USSR or anything like that. It defined them as bureaucratic centrists. And because in the early period, the Stalinists actually, they weren't aware of what they were becoming. And they actually wanted victory. They were honest revolutionaries to a greater or lesser degree. Uh, but their policies guaranteed defeat. Their policy in the Anglo-Russian Committee, where they had the, the Stalinists had an unprincipled unity with the General Council of the, uh, the British TUC. And, and when the reformist bureaucrats, and, and they did this because they were trying to have a sort of anti-imperialist bulwark, to, to protect the Soviet Union, really protect their, their own bureaucratic privileges. So they made an unprincipled deal with the reformists and the General Council of the, uh, the Trade Union Council, uh, the British uh, Union General. And, uh, and then after the General Council and the reformists betrayed the 1926 general strike, the Stalinists refused to break with them and, and led to, you know, enabled the victory of the bureaucracy and, and, and the marginalizing of the Communist Party that was just seen as sort of an appendage to the Labour bureaucrats. So they did that, but they generally wanted the victory of the workers. The two-stage theory led to the defeat of the Chinese Revolution. Did the Stalinists want this? No. But their policy made it inevitable in 1926, 1927. Uh, and, and so it's actually necessary when you're talking about centrism. Centrism is not a stable phenomenon. Centrism could be used to define a tendency moving from left reformism to Marxism. And so you'd have to put an arrow next to that going leftwards. However, centrism can also be used to define a tendency going from Marxism to reformism, and then you'd have to put an arrow going rightwards. So it's necessary to always put an arrow next to what kind of centrism. Incidentally, uh, Trotsky later abandoned this definition of Stalinism, as in the 30s they moved over from being sort of honest revolutionaries to being conscious counter-revolutionaries. And they played a specific, especially with the Spanish Revolution, they played a conscious role in crushing the revolution. So, centrism is also organically unstable. It, you know, it, can, it exists in individuals fairly stably. People can, uh, you know, this is a, not our room, not the place to get into Freudian psychology. People can believe very contradictory things at the same time. Uh, or even small groups. But as mass tendency, it's organically unstable. And this is because it is important to conceive of political groupings and parties as standing on a base of class interests. Now, they don't reflect them directly, but in generality, groupings stand upon classes or castes or significant groups within society. Now this explains in the movement, this explains the confidence, actually like the belligerence of the right reformists. Because they feel behind them the bosses, the bankers, the capitalists. It gives them 
a degree of confidence. They stand on the basis of capitalism. And when they're facing the lefts, right, so like, you know, we, we have bourgeois public opinion behind us, and they act in a resolute fashion against the lefts, who do the lefts represent? Well, the left reformists and centrists do not have the backing of the bourgeois, but they also do not have the backing of the working class. They actually fear and do not understand and uh, have, have, they themselves have no confidence in the working class and the feeling is mutual. The work, so they are always irresolute. Yeah, we saw this just even recently, the, uh, the NDP debate over the removal of uh, commitments to public ownership and, and socialism. Where is the left opposition? All of, even the sort of few left MPs who voted against the amendment, none of them got up and spoke. Completely irresolute. All the way down the line. Only genuine Marxism has the confidence to stand on the basis of the working class. Because we stand on the best traditions of the workers. The memory of the best of the working class struggle of 150, 200 years. It gives the Marxists the confidence. In fact, where the Marxists are strong, it also strengthens the left reformists and the centrists in some ways, because we give them a bit of backbone. Whereas where the Marxists are not present, the left reformists and the centrists, they always capitulate, unless they're not given the opportunity to by the workers. So Trotsky understood this uh, sort of complex dialectical birth of centrism. Actually, I'm going to read out a lengthy quote, hope comrades don't mind, uh, from The Evolution of the French Socialist Party, written July 10th, 1934. Uh, unfortunately, this isn't available online, uh, but uh, you have to get Trotsky's works for it. So the a Trotsky linked development of centrism actually to the to the crisis in society. The crisis of the democratic state of the bourgeoisie necessarily also signifies a crisis of the social democratic party. The essence of the democratic state consists, as is known, in that everybody has the right to say and to write what he will, without in all important questions the final words rest with the big property owners. This result is attained by means of a complex system of partial concessions, reforms, illusions, corruption, deceit, and intimidation. When the economic possibility of partial concessions has been exhausted, the social democracy ceases to be the main political support of the bourgeoisie. Paralleling this shift in the state system, important shifts take place within the social democracy. With the decline of the epoch of reformism, the internal regime of the social democracy is a reproduction of the regime of bourgeois democracy. Every party member can say and think what he will, but the decisions are made by the summits of the apparatus closely bound up with the state. Everybody can see the truth of this. To the extent that the bourgeoisie loses the possibility of ruling the support of the public opinion of the exploited, the social democratic leaders lose the possibility of directing the public opinion of their own party. But the reformist leaders, unlike the leaders of the bourgeoisie, have no coercive apparatus at their disposal. Thank God. To the extent, therefore, that parliamentary democracy is exhausted, the internal democracy of the socialist party, contrarywise, becomes more and more of a reality. The bureaucratic leaderships lose control of the ranks. The crisis of the democratic state and the crisis of the social democratic party develop in parallel but opposite directions. So it's a very, very profound and dialectical analysis. It flows into sort of Camillo's next lead off on Bonapartism. The centrism and Bonapartism are two things that come together. They both represent a crisis of society. That the normal way of doing things 
can no longer continue. So the 1930s were the classical epoch of centrism. So here you have an epoch with extreme crisis, starting with the 1929 economic crash. And, but you also had the degeneration of both the second and the third internationals. Crazy ultra-left policy of uh, the third period Stalinism, of social fascism, blocked the road of the masses to communism. That, uh, you know, in the previous revolutionary period, after the Russian Revolution, the healthy worker state acted as a magnet for all the best tendencies in the working class and an educating role in the, for the best tendencies in the working class. The Stalinists did the precise opposite. They weren't a magnet. They repelled everybody and miseducated everybody. And yet the crisis continued. And you saw the rise of fascism and Bonapartism. So we had the economic condition through the 29 crash and they had the political precondition the collapse of Stalinism, and the rise of fascism and Bonapartism, the political conditions. And this concentrated the mind of the working class immensely. Just imagine it. You've been a trade unionist, a socialist. You weren't particularly radical, necessarily. But you always looked to Germany. Germany, the largest socialist party, the largest union movement. And then, without a window being broken, Hitler comes to power. And the greatest working class organization, as far as you know, destroyed without a whimper. And people you looked up to, they're all in exile, or they're put in prison, they're tortured, they're disappeared, they're murdered. It concentrates the mind somewhat. Many people come to the conclusions, Jesus Christ, we can't continue the way things have been going. We have to do something. So it can play a very radical, radicalizing role in the consciousness of fairly conservative elements, if you like. People that would have supported the reformists in the past, or supported reformism in the past. Ironically, the sort of first uh, sort of wave of centrism uh, in the 1930s, uh, came from Britain. I say this ironic, uh, say it's ironic, because Britain you know, was the the seat of empire, the strongest capitalist power, uh, the home of reformism, if you like. That, uh, but actually, this was all predicted by Trotsky in his, his fantastic work uh, on Britain, uh, with a Britain, and uh, because the previous relations, the previous reforms were all based upon that dominant imperialism of Great Britain. But as the empire began to collapse, and the benefits of empire collapsed, then all of the relations that were built upon those imperialist benefits for, fell. They couldn't afford the old reforms, and so everything that the working class had previously gained through organization was being taken away is no longer affordable. I'd say you'd actually you'd see a similar situation with Ontario and Quebec, that the uh, Canadian labor movement is built on the back of manufacturing and exports from Ontario and Quebec, and that's being destroyed. And all the reforms and the trade and the trade unionism is on that economic basis in the post-war period. That's being destroyed. And so there is a rebalancing, and the so-called Canadian dream is being destroyed. That, and that can play an incredibly radicalizing role, taking away what was previously seen as natural. So there's this crisis of the British Empire led to the 1926 general strike, which was betrayed by the reformists with the assistance of the Stalinists, as I said. And then we saw the further betrayal in 1931, where Labour government, the Labour Prime Minister Ramsay MacDonald, jumps ships and forms the National Government, which unites with the Conservatives and the Liberals. 
of this turmoil provokes the split of the Independent Labour Party in 1932 and as a centrist, mass centrist formation with about 100,000 supporters. Uh, they, they believed in nationalisation, workers' control. They're against imperialist war, even though their understanding of it was a little bit confused and pacifist. Uh, that uh, they were, but they it was a first sort of mass te centrist tendency within Europe in the 1930s. Uh, Trotsky actually uh, criticised them that they split on a very sort of obtuse issue of the independence of their parliamentary faction. That the independent Labour Party was sort of a constituent part of the Labour Party, the broader Labour Party. And, uh, and they were told that their, their MPs, their members of parliament must follow the whip. And, uh, and they split on that. And Trotsky criticised them, saying, look, you should pick an issue. If you're going to split, you should pick an issue that the workers understand. You know, an issue of a, a real economic issue, a real political issue, not sort of like the inside baseball of the independence of parliamentary faction. You know, that doesn't affect the workers' lives in any concrete way. And uh, and even though they had you know a hundred thousand supporters, Trotsky even still said said that they were sect. They're a big sect. They're a sect none, nonetheless, and they were confused on Communist Party. And they're confused on the need for a fourth international. Trotsky advised uh, his supporters in Britain to enter the Independent Labour Party. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, the comrades on the ground didn't understand what Trotsky was trying to present. Uh, actually, Ted Grant and uh, his supporter and, and the comrades who came over to South Africa with him sort of did enter the Independent Labour Party. But they were a bit too late. And so didn't get uh, the gains that they could have if they'd gone in right away. But I think Ted only got to Britain in 1934, and so the, the IOP split in 1932. And actually those who opposed entry talked about the principle of independence, that Lenin spoke about the need for an independent revolutionary party. And... Trotsky answered this was that yes, we do believe in an independent mass revolutionary party, but you're not a party. You're just a small grouping. And the independent Labour Party with 100,000 members, say only 1% of them are open to a revolutionary policy. If only 1% of them are open for the call for a fourth international. Well, 1% of 100,000, that's 1,000 people. And for a group of 50, 60, 1,000 people is more than enough for now. <laughs> and Trotsky actually explained that a sectarian, in many ways, is a reformist who is afraid of his reformism. Because they're afraid that if actually they went into these organisations, they'd immediately capitulate and become indistinguishable from the reformists, which is an honest fear of some of these people. That is why when you go in, go in, you must go with an implacable revolutionary policy. Trotsky tried to engage the leaders of the Independent Labour Party. Uh, Fenner Brockway was the sort of lead figure, and they say about, okay, you've understood the, that reformism, the second international is in crisis, and yet you haven't joined the Third International, you've got critiques of the Third International. Clearly, the only logical conclusion you could come is the meaning of a Fourth International. But, uh, unfortunately, these sort of attempts at a dialogue were met with irony, that the leader of the ILP refused to come to the, to the logical conclusions of their actions, refused to, and, and they ended up in the orbit of the Stalinists, which is completely illogical. Well, if you agree with the Stalinists, join the Stalinists. Why are there two separate organizations? Uh, but if you don't, follow that 
to its logical conclusion. Actually, Fenner Brockway uh, made uh, ironic comments about not wanting to be uh, have to follow dictators in the height from the heights of Oslo. And, and Trotsky replied to this uh, uh, comment that first of all, I'm not living in Oslo. Secondly, there are no heights in Oslo. <laughs> and third, this is not a replacement for a proper, such petty, bureaucratic, personal intrigues, are not a replacement for a genuine revolutionary policy. It's not about being dictated to. It's about if you believe that we need a new international, then you must build it and democratically debate with those best elements that also believe there needs to be a new revolutionary international. So the IOP uh, rejected, the IOP leaders, shall we say, rejected uh, these overtures, and instead they formed the London Bureau, what was known the London Bureau, or, or ironically called the, th the Three and a Half International, given the analogy of the Two and a Half International, <coughs> which united disparate centrist currents. Uh, Trotsky wrote a fantastic uh, little pamphlet called In the Middle of the Road, criticizing the ILP for their inconsistency, and saying, look, if you, if you stand in the middle of the road, you get run over by traffic moving both ways. You must pick a side. And he said to the ILP, first, work out a Marxist program. Second, turn away from the Communist Party and face the mass organizations which in the British conditions are actually inextricably linked up with the Labour Party. And third, stand for the Fourth International. They refused. And they entered into decline. Because hybrid formations have never have a long lifespan. No hybrid formations can survive for any period of time. The centrists attacked the uh, Trotsky's international left opposition as dogmatists and sectarians for wanting to actually debate ideas and presenting clear ideas. We've also seen that amongst the lefts everywhere we go nowadays. Don't discuss ideas, that's sectarian. You know, you must unite. Unite on the lowest common denominator possible, which in effect means unite on the basis of reformism, because that's the only thing that everybody can agree with. Uh, so, and, and this actually, this attack on dogmatism, this attack on so-called sectarianism of clear ideas, in fact, it, it reflects the petty bourgeois hostility to clear ideas. That, no, 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 if, if you have a clear idea, then you must actually do something about it. In, in many ways, it actually reflects the, the, the role of petty bourgeois in society. That they fear and they hate the bourgeois and the big bankers for what they do, oppressing the middle people. But they also fear and hate the working class for all the inconvenience of strikes and demonstrations and, and other such, such uh, irresolute actions that the workers take. This is what it's symptomatic of. And in fact, what happened in the mid-30s is the Labour Party moved to the left in uh, reflection of the crisis, and the ILP entered into steep decline, precisely because when the masses see two, par two workers' parties with a similar platform, with not a platform that they can put a fundamental difference between, then they'll tend to flock to the bigger party. It's a simple law. And the ILP entered into swift decline. They, uh, uh, in 1939, they uh, tried to uh, they negotiated with the reformist leadership of the Labour Party for re-entrance, and that was actually re rejected by the bureaucrats. And so, a couple of years later, they just kind of all went back to the reformist fold as individuals. So, that's the sorry tale of the ILP. Although I think it legally existed up until the mid-70s. Uh, but in fact, in effect, it died in the uh, Second World War. Next example of centrism 
is the SFRO, uh, the French Socialist Party. Now, the, uh, the Stalinist third period policy of uh, social fascism, that all of the workers' organizations, all the, the social democrats, were the same as the fascists, actually led to the Stalinists uniting with fascists to break up socialist meetings, insanity. It almost led to a fascist victory in France in 1934. The fascists could have come to power in 1934 with the assistance of the Stalinists. But this event massively scared the socialist workers and the communist workers too. But see what was happening in Nazi Germany. And, and the, the French socialists moved far to the left on the basis of these events. They expelled the, the right-wing neo-faction and formed a united front with the Communist Party. And this was the slogan of the, of the Trotskyists, of the left opposition, for many years, that there must be a united front of socialists and communists against the fascist threat. And in, in response to this uh, leftward turn, centrist turn of the French Socialist Party, uh, Trotsky proposes the French turn, what's known as the French turn. And uh, let's see, I have a quote here, where is it? Um, and and Tr Trotsky outlined the known conditions for entrism which existed at that time. One, a general crisis of capitalist society provoking moods of discontent among the masses who begin to look for a way out. Two, crisis of the capitalist state, the threat of fascism and Bonapartist tendencies. Three, linked to this, a crisis of the reformist leadership which tends to lose its grip on the party. Four, affirmative in the mass organisations and development of a critical mood towards the leadership. And five, the crystallization of mass left-wing or centrist tendencies. Now, this, those conditions applied to the French Socialist Party. Um, unfortunately, there were the leaders of the French uh, Trotskyists didn't fully understand what Trotsky was getting at, uh, and so there was a period of debate and lost opportunities. Um, but uh, and I actually see it's sort of a, a link between opportunism and sectarianism. As I said before, the sectarian is a reformist afraid of his reformism. That the most implacable opponents of entry, the most implacable adherence to the independence of the Revolutionary Party in one period, in another period end up being those who form unprincipled popular fronts with those reformist bureaucracies. Because to actually to do proper Marxist work is to enter these mass organizations specifically to fight the reformist bureaucracy or centrist elements, centrist leadership, in order to expose its vacillating vacillations and platitudes. It is not the easy path, it is the hard path. The easy path is independence, and the easy path is bureaucratic diplomacy. Okay, that's your bit of the pie, that's our bit of the pie, and we just agree not to dis we agree not to uh, criticize each other too harshly, even though the, you know, the defined policy is one that is betraying the working class. Despite these sort of weaknesses and lost opportunities, some opportunist temp tendencies, some sectarian tendencies, the entry into the French Socialist Party was relatively successful. The, uh, in 1936, the, uh, the United Front became transformed into a popular front with uh, the entry of the, the radicals. So the, the Socialist Party, the Communist Party, and the bourgeois radicals form a government in 1936. And, uh, and, and the, the Stalinists, they briefly went through a period of correct policy, a United Front policy. But they went from the crazy ultra-left social fascism third period period uh, in the early 30s, late 20s, early 30s, and then they ended up in the popular front period of that you must have unity with the uh, so-called progressive bourgeoisie against fascism 
which is which has also led to the, the victory of fascism. So, in 1936, the uh, the socialists end up uh, in the United Front government, and that's when Trotsky uh, proposes that join to a close the the entry, and it ended up being relatively successful. Within that two year period, the French Trotskyists went from about 400 to 600 members. Although with a full understanding, they could have done far far better. Spain is the next sort of classical example. Spain enters a revolutionary crisis in 1931, and uh, with the fall of the dictator, fall of the monarchy, and and, th and this uh, opens up a period of uh, sort of radical democracy, republicanism, and uh, which came to its head with the Asturian Commune in 1934, uprising of the workers, uh, which was unfortunately defeated, which ushered in two black years of reaction. Now, the defeat of the Asturian Commune radicalized sections of the Spanish Socialist Party, and especially the young socialists drew revolutionary conclusions from the defeat of the Asturian Commune, and they moved far to the left. In 1935, the Young Socialists break with both the Second and the Third Internationals and invite the Trotskyists, invite the left opposition, to enter the Young Socialists and educate them in the ways of genuine revolution. Andrés Nin, the leader of the Spanish left opposition, um, refuses on the, you know, saying, we can't go there, they're reformists. No, we must have independence of the Revolutionary Party. Despite the fact, there were 100,000 youth in the Young Socialists. Nin had about, I think, what, 800 supporters, 1,000 supporters? Something like Less. that at the time? Less. Less, yeah. A few hundred. And this was the road to a mass tendency. And, and, and this is the point where Trotsky broke off all relations with him. Called this an utter betrayal. And uh, and then after being rejected by the Trot so-called Trotskyists, not Trotskyists, but people working under the name of Trotsky, uh, the uh, the young socialists come under the orbit of the Stalinists. The leaders are invited to Moscow, wined and dined. I'm sure, they had some very nice caviar. And, and that is actually how the Stalinists gained a mass base in the Spanish Revolution to crush the revolution. The Stalinists actually were half the size of the left opposition in the first period of the Spanish Revolution. They were half the size. But on the basis of the, uh, the young socialists, they gained a mass base, which they... They used to crush the revolution. This, the, yeah, essentially, the, the, the Spanish youth were centrists, very honest centrists, wanting wanting to learn. But uh, the betrayal of Nin led to the betrayal of the revolution, the victory of Franco, the murder of hundreds of thousands of revolutionaries. So. When anybody tells you that socialist ideas, you know, these ideas, they're too abstract. Why don't we just unite? It doesn't matter. You know, you see that the, these ideas mean the difference between life and death, between victory and defeat, between, you know, 50 years of fascism under, under Franco. So, 40 years, sorry. So, and then subsequently, then... Uh, unites with the right opposition and the Catalan nationalists to form the centrist PUM. And, and yeah, the centrist, the, the PUM, they were heroic fighters, the ranks of this organization. And, uh, and they're still on the basis of the permanent revolution, but they had a completely inconsistent policy, including entering the pop, even though they're still on the basis of uh, the permanent revolution that the workers must play the leading role in the National Democratic Revolution, 
which Spain was not, you know, it was a relatively backward peasant country in the 1930s. They then entered the Popular Front. They supported the Popular Front, had a common manifesto with the socialists, the, uh, the communists, and the bourgeois liberals, of all people. These implacable revolu revolutionaries that, you know, could not enter a reformist organization, then were perfectly happy signing onto a, a reformist document. Trotsky also used this to criticize the uh, leaders of the ARP, because the Poon were part of the London Bureau. Here, you, you know, implacable revolutionaries, and yet you're entering, you're, a part of your international is entering a popular front which led to the defeat of the Spanish Revolution. And McNeil himself was arrested, tortured, and murdered by the uh, GPU, the forerunner of the KGB. So even these abstract ideas can even be personally important. You know, you don't want to end up in a Stalinist gulag. So read your books. That's the way to stay out of prison. Uh, so, maybe. <laughs> that may not be empirically verified. Uh, so, the, the key to the, the genuine Marxist policy on, on centrism and the mass organizations, and, and, Trotsky, and, and I really encourage comments, read Trotsky's writings of the 30s. They, they are an incredible treasure trove of ideas. But the key thing is to be incredibly flexible in tactics, but implacable in policy, implacable in ideas and theory. Right? So sometimes to fight the reformists, reformist bureaucracy, you must enter a reformist bureaucratic organization or a centrist organization, if that is the balance of forces. For example, Trotsky decided to turn away from the Communist International after the victory of Hitler in 1933. Prior to that, the international left opposition considered themselves as expelled members of the communist movement and orientated towards the communists. But after Hitler came to power and it didn't cause a rupture in the Communist International, Trotsky realized that that road was blocked and... Uh, and came to the uh, conclusion of the need to build a fourth international. And, they had, and Trotsky supporters actually went to a meeting of the London Bureau, the Three and a Half International, in 1933, and presented the call for a fourth international, and actually gained the support of three centrist organisations for a document called the Declaration of Four, for a fourth international. That was the international left opposition, the German uh, SAP, the Danish OSP, and the Danish RSP. So he was showing that even though opposed to centrist, centrist inconsistencies, we're willing to unite to form a new international together with these revolutionary tendencies. Even though they themselves were confused, as two of the signatories to the Declaration of Four also voted in favour of the majority statement of the, uh, the London Bureau, which was opposed to Fourth International. So, yeah, here, yeah and, and, uh, and, and this is when, when yeah, Trotsky recognised this and said, look, uh, we, we call for a Fourth International, we work together with friend, our friends, and we hope to patiently explain them, and they have to explain their own inconsistencies. Uh, but the only condition of unity must be free and democratic criticism. You cannot have unity on the basis of hiding your ideas. Because those hidden ideas will eventually bite you in the ass. They will, they will appear in the, in the least desirable fashion. It's better to have it out in the open and debate it clearly. This is not segment sectarianism. This is not dogmatism. This is uh, the only honest way to have unity, that unite and act where you have agreement, and where you do not have agreement, you have comradely debate. 
That is the only way to achieve unity. Freedom of criticism, no diplomacy, right? No mutual understandings. Well, I'll, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine. Trotsky advised his uh, supporters, don't get distracted on side issues. Don't be ironic about the platitudes that the rank and file of the centrist organizations might not understand. Stick to the key issues, the key political and economic questions that are the defining issues of the, of the epoch. And the key lesson is, don't get sucked in. Don't get sucked into the swamp. You need to have firm revolutionary theory. So you don't get sucked in by the centrist or left reformist platitudes. So, that's the lessons of the 1930s. Post-war period. Well, we saw a new radicalization in the 1970s with mass left-wing formations. That the, the left-wing gains uh, control of the British Labour Party and the militant tendency, the Marxist tendency, became the left of that left. Classical long-term work of the mass organizations. In Portugal and Spain and Greece, the PASOC, we've all learned to hate the PASOC, but in the 1970s, the Portuguese and the Spanish socialists and the Greece, Greek PASOC were all in favor of nationalization and workers' control. All of them. Felipe González was actually the socialist prime minister of Spain in the 1980s, was a contact of our organization in the 1970s in the Spanish Young Socialists with the fall of the Franco regime. And, and actually to look at an example of centrism, we actually don't have to go too, too far. It was a uh, cradle of centrism only, what is it, 40 years ago? up at York University, the waffle tendency. That the reality is that the waffle's politics, were, the, the rise of the waffle was completely accidental and in many ways stupid. I mean, we shouldn't publish this speech. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but, he, but, it, but it met with the crisis of the times. That he had a policy, there were left nationalists and saw that US industry control, US multinationals controlled the majority of Canadian industry. So they came up with the idea that the only way to secure Canadian independence from American imperialism was to nationalize all US assets. It's impossible to nationalize all US, US assets, this side of a socialist revolution. Nationalizing all US assets would be a, uh, a process within the Canadian Revolution. And, uh, but, th but this met the crisis at the times, the, uh, you know, the wave of movements around 1968, you know, the French Revolution, Italy, the civil rights movement, uh, movement Movement in Pakistan, you know, the wave, wave movement, the coming global slump, that, uh, and the waffle seized, could, yeah, became a part of this movement. Not because of itself, but because the masses were looking for an outlet, any outlet. They actually gained a majority in New Brunswick and Alberta NDP. They had about 50% support in the BC, in BC NDP and gave a third of the votes in the leadership convention. Incredible development. Unfortunately, the leaders were terrible petty bourgeois and, and this was used against the waffle. This was identified as a weakness of the waffle and they, and they mobilized the union base. Oh, these people hate unions, they hate workers. And in many ways, it wasn't that far a stretch to take the elitist, uh, this, this student elitism from New York University and to mobilize the workers against that. But then there was very minor bureaucratic repression. The Ontario NDP, again, idiotic Toronto centrism, uh, the Ontario, Ontario NDP 
provincial council passed a resolution saying that the uh, the waffle needs should disband. And you know, it's like as if the Ontario NDP is the whole party, right? Meeting in a hotel in downtown Toronto. Uh, yeah, these people completely fa not only just failed to see the rest of yeah the country, they failed to see the rest of Ontario even. You know, Toronto's a terrible place that way. Uh, that, uh, but that very, very minor bureaucratic repression, if they, if they just ignored it, there was no way that they were going to be able to implement that policy in the rest of the country, or even in Ontario. Uh, they, but they, they took that very minor repression and split away into the wilderness, and there was nothing to be heard of them again within a couple of years. It was a huge lost opportunity that if Marxists had been there, the best elements from the waffle could be one to genuine revolutionary policy, and it could have been the springboard to a significant revolutionary tendency in Canada. So bringing up to today, sort of modern centrism. Well, uh, again, this is very difficult. This is this is a difficult definition because it is a dialectical. It's a moving target. It's not something that you could just put a label on and that, that you're good to go. We actually, at certain periods, we advance the definition of centrism for Hugo Chavez in his best period. It was for the revolutionary transformation of societies, for nationalization and workers' control, but confused about how to achieve it. Uh, but only in his best period. <laughs> He's had other periods, too. Um, and, and we wouldn't really call it the, uh, the PSUV, the Socialist, uh, the uh, Venezuelan Socialist Party. We wouldn't really call that centrist. But you could see, actually, a centrist left falling from within the PSUV with the right conditions. Syriza in Greece. Well, certain periods at its best may be centrist, but... Because the petty bourgeois leaders of Syriza do not stand on the basis of the working class, this is a law, the closer they get to power, the more they're pushed to the right. And now Cyprus, they definitely couldn't deter, define him as a centrist, maybe a left reformist, probably a reformist now. Right? So it is very contradictory. And we live, so we live in a turbulent epoch discussed Turkey this morning. We, we're living in the epoch of revolutions. It is inevitable we will see formation of lefts, of centrist currents, sooner or later, in various conditions in various countries. Can I tell you when? No, I cannot. I just know that we should expect it. We see the rise of left formations like Delinka, the left front, Syriza, etc. Uh, and we also see significant splits both to the left and to the right in the existing uh, workers' organizations. Why is this coming about? Well, nature abhors a vacuum, comrades. If there were mass revolutionary parties on a firm Marxist platform, there would be a very easy role for the masses to take. But it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. That is our collective failure. It doesn't exist. But you've got all this pressure from below. It has to go somewhere. And that somewhere is the formation of left wings and centrist currents within the mass organizations. Eventually. And this is the classical conditions for our entry into that uh, Trotsky explained. You know, I'll, I'll reiterate: pre-revolutionary or revolutionary situation, ferment in social democracy, development of a left wing, the possibility of rapid crystallization of the revolutionary tendency. These conditions, especially the fourth one, is only possible if we build Marxist tendency now, 
build it with roots in the mass organizations, and train our cadres now. So they are not sectarian, so we're not sectarian to these mass tendencies, but neither, neither are we have illusions in them or succumb to the platitudes. We can't get sucked in by left speeches. Right? Can't see, you know, Amir Kadir or Sherry Danova or uh, Libby Davies or whoever you like getting up and giving a radical speech. Sid Ryan. You're like, oh, great, great, great. Well, you're going to see, you see, what, why are they doing that? Do they, do they want to be doing that? Actually, it has a logic of its own. Opportunity. They're, they're, they're just the right reformists. Uh, you know, they are based upon the bourgeois. They are the, the, they are the point of support of the bourgeois within the movement. But the lefts, they're, they're mostly opportunists. They're an easy life and a good job. But an opportunist, if nothing else, likes to be popular. And they always say, well, you can't be too radical because people don't like that. But then accidentally, something left-wing comes out of their mouth. And everybody's applauding and standing up. I thought, wow, this is fun. You know? <laughs> wow, I like that. People like me. And so they see something else left-wing, and there's even more applause. And it leads its own logic. And so, uh, so we can... Uh, but that is symptomatic not of the individual making the speech, it's symptomatic of the masses. And so we can't be fooled by the person making the speech. We've got to look to the masses and criticise the inconsistencies and the failure to follow everything to the logical conclusions. If we're clear-headed against these platitudes and have a consistent revolutionary policy and a clear position on the need for a revolutionary international, because this is where almost all of these people have felt full down on, yeah. internationalism in the abstract rather than internationalism in deeds. We have these clear policies, but combined with flexible tactics, comrades, with an open approach, we patiently explain, mild in manner, bold in content. If we do that, we are preparing the conditions for the formation of a mass revolutionary tendency, mass revolutionary organizations in Canada, in Britain, United States, in France, in Germany, in Venezuela, in Indonesia, in Pakistan, in Russia, and globally. That is what we're preparing, but only on the basis of clear ideas, flexible tactics. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Fight Back Radio. Fight Back is a revolutionary organization fighting for the socialist transformation of society. We are the Canadian section of the international Marxist tendency. We actively seek to educate workers and youth in the genuine ideas of Marxism in order to fight back against capitalist attacks and austerity and bring an end to capitalism. However, we won't be able to do this alone. So if you agree with us, get involved. It can be found online at marxist.ca, on Twitter, Facebook, and TikTok at Canada Marxists, on Instagram at Socialist Fightback, and on YouTube as Fightback La Riposte. For international news and analysis, check out In Defense of Marxism at marxist.com. The music in this episode is General Strike by Soul Jazz Orchestra. It can be found at souljazzorchestra.com.